0: This week is Parsha's Behaloscha, and it's such a loaded Parsha that I actually told one of my Torch colleagues that had I needed to do 10 different podcast episodes on the Parsha, I feel like I would find enough to talk about this is such a loaded Parsha. As it were, our subject today comes from the very beginning of the Parsha, and the Parsha begins with the menorah, and we've seen the menorah a few times already, it's made out of gold, it's hewn out of a single block of gold, it's very intricately embellished with cups and flowers and buttons, it has seven stems, three on either side of the central one, and it's placed opposite the table on the southern side of the sanctuary, and the coin lights it each night, and the parasha tells us how the lights are oriented. The sits on either side are directed towards the middle central one. Hashem is saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you kindle the menorah towards the face of the menorah, shall the seven lights be cast. And Aaron indeed did so. And it describes to us in verse four, the workmanship of the menorah hammered out of gold from its base to its flower. It's hammered out according to the vision that Hashem showed Moshe. I want to focus on a fascinating Rashi. This is the first one on the Parsha. And as we mentioned last week, last week's Parsha ends with the 12 days of inauguration tributes. Each one of the heads of the tribes, of the princes of the tribes, brings a silver bowl and a silver basin and a gold ladle and 21 different animal sacrifices. But Aaron and his tribe, the tribe of Levi, they were absent from that. And Rashi tells us, quoting a midrash, that Aaron was sad that he had no part in that inauguration tribute of the princes. Says Rashi, why does our parsha begin with the instruction of the menorah when last week's parsha ended off with the tributes of the princes? Says Rashi, because when Aaron saw the inauguration of the princes, he felt sad about it because he was not there with the inauguration, not him and not his tribe. And God comforted him. And God said, I promise you, yours is greater than theirs, because you are going to kindle and prepare the candles for the menorah. That's what Rashi says, quoting from the Midrash. The reason why these two sections are juxtaposed is because the inauguration tribute of the princes, that triggered Aaron to complain or to feel sad that he wasn't included. And God mollified him. And God assuaged him and he comforted him, don't worry, what you do is even greater, you light the menorah. There's a few glaring problems with this narrative. First of all, it seems like Aaron is envious. He's envious, why do they bring the tribute and not me or my tribe? And God responded, don't worry, you have something greater. But here's the problem. We know that Aaron is the only person in history that the Torah testifies about that he had no shred of envy. All the way back in Parshish Shmos, Moshe is being instructed by God to go to Egypt, to go save the Jewish people, to go lead the people out of Egypt, and Moshe objects to being sent to save the people because he's worried that his older brother Aaron maybe would feel a little miffed. And God said, don't worry about Aaron. Aaron, when he sees your stature and your leadership, he will be glad in his heart. He won't just be happy externally, truthfully, internally. He will be delighted that you are the king. You are in charge. So if Aaron has no envy, why is he envious of the princes and their tributes? Moreover, if Aaron's complaint is rooted in envy... Why would God legitimize this by placating him? Oh, don't worry. There's something for you too. Is that how we're supposed to respond to envy? By giving in? You imagine that the proper way to respond to envy is to point out, well, everyone gets what they deserve. It's all apportioned by God. It's fair. Don't be envious. In our family, we have a saying that if you look at your sibling's portion – Oh, they have such a bigger piece of cake. They have more ice cream than me. Well, by looking at their portion, yours actually shrinks. We don't believe that envy is a good thing. Yet, apparently, Aaron is envious and God comforts him when Aaron seemingly levies an improper envious complaint. Now, there's another problem with this Rashi and that's the Ramban's question. Aaron is upset, he doesn't have a place in the tribute of the princes, and God comforts him, don't worry, you have the menorah. Why is God comforting Aaron, wonders the Ramban, particularly with the menorah? There are a great many things that Aaron does that the princes don't do, and he gives a list. Aaron, of course, the Kohen, he brings the Torahs, the incense in the morning and the evening, and he does all the sacrifices, and he does the meal offerings, and he does the work on Yom Kippur, and he enters the Holy of Holies, and he's the Holy One of God, and he stands in God's sanctuary to service him, and he blesses in the name of God, and his entire tribe are the clergymen. Why, particularly, is the menorah being highlighted? When you look at the Ramban, he persists with a battery of questions on how Rashi understands this Midrash. And he proposes a novel interpretation, and we mentioned this in the rebroadcast podcast. He says that this Midrash that Rashi quotes, it's not referring to the lighting of the menorah, so to speak, that was done on a daily, regular basis in the temple and in the tabernacle, but it's referring to the second inauguration of the temple, namely the Hanukkah miracle, when the temple was rededicated by the Hasmoneans The Kohanic family, descendants of Aaron, more than a thousand years after Aaron passed. And that's what God is comforting Aaron with. You did not have a place, did not have a portion in this inauguration? Don't worry, I'm going to give your descendants a portion in the next inauguration when the temple is rededicated after it was defiled by the Greeks. I want to suggest a new approach. I want to suggest a new approach for understanding this Midrash and the back and forth, the dialogue between Aaron's sadness and God's comfort. And maybe that would help resolve the questions on Rashi. And we wouldn't need to resort to the creativity of the Ramban. Now, again, I want to make this clear. I'm not arguing the Ramban. This is fair game. Whenever there's a Midrash, Rashi offers one interpretation. The Ramban offers another interpretation. We could offer our own interpretation. That's okay. But I think this would also be a way of understanding Rashi himself. Maybe this is what Rashi is referring to. So first of all, Aaron's complaint was definitely not rooted in envy. He is the only person about whom the Torah testifies that he is glad in his heart for the greatness given to others. He had no shred, no scintilla of bad feeling that his younger brother Moshe will get all the glory and not him. Similarly, you could be certain that he was glad in his heart that the princes, they got to bring the inauguration tribute. What saddened Aaron is that the Almighty chose to withhold from him and his tribe the opportunity to contribute. Aaron was someone that was always aspiring for spiritual opportunities. And you know, we all want to have a role to play. We all want to have something to contribute. And Aaron is no different. It's not envy to want to do something positive. Or at a minimum, maybe it is envy, but it's the good kind of envy. And there's a famous idiom in the Talmud, "Kinas so from tarbah the envy of scribes, of scholars, will increase wisdom. That's a good kind of envy. So Aaron wants to do something positive, to contribute to the national effort of the inauguration. It's not envy. It's a good desire. And what's God's response? He tells him, yours is better than theirs. Yours is greater than theirs. The responsibility that I accorded for you is greater than what I gave to the princes. Because you prepare and kindle the menorah. Why is kindling the menorah greater than bringing the tribute for the inauguration? So here's the idea I want to suggest to you, my dear friends and listeners of the Parsha podcast. Here's the idea. We have the inauguration of the tabernacle. It's come after months of hard work. The Almighty says, you build me a tabernacle, I will dwell amongst you. And indeed, we build the tabernacle and God came and dwelled in our midst. This is one of the most elevated moments of our history. The entire nation was oozing with joy and pride. And on the first day of the tabernacle, a fire descends down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices from atop the altar. And the whole nation erupts in praise of God and they fall on their face. There's this unparalleled mix of joy and trepidation. What a time. What a moment. And the princes, they're inspired and they offer a tribute to mark the occasion. And God tells Moshe to accept the 12 tributes from the 12 princes and on 12 successive days after the inauguration of the tabernacle, each day features the tribute of one of the princes. And Aaron, understandably, feels saddened that he couldn't participate in this tribute. And God said to him, your portion is greater. Now, Things are swell. Everything's going swimmingly. We're atop the world. The tabernacle has been built. Everyone is on cloud nine. Now it's really easy to be positive and optimistic. But what about when things go south? What about when things sour? What about when things aren't so pleasant? What about when things lose their pizzazz? What about when our nation hits a speed bump? Who will lead us out of the quagmire then? That's what we need you for, Aaron. Your job is even greater. The princes brought a tribute when everything was going smooth, it was all smooth sailing. When things were easy and glamorous, the princes offered a tribute. Aaron, your role is even greater. You kindle the menorah when it's dark and things are not In an ideal fashion. And perhaps we are close to giving up. When we feel depressed, Aaron lights the menorah. When does he light it? At night. When things are dark and dangerous and scary. When the darkness destabilizes us. When we feel vulnerable, we feel helpless. Aaron lights the menorah. Aaron kindles the seven flames of the menorah: the three on the right, the three on the left, and the one in the middle. And that light accompanies us until the morning. The menorah symbolizes hope in every situation. Aaron, yours is greater than theirs. They are offering a tribute when everything is wonderful, when things are idyllic, when things are utopian when everything is new and fresh and exciting and upbeat. Aaron, you are there to help people when they're down, to help them when they're vulnerable and weak and susceptible to falling apart. You are there for them in times of need and want and desperation. You light the menorah when it's dark and frightening and things aren't so glamorous and shiny and sparkly. That's when you inspire the people. Perhaps we can't say the princes kindled a light during midday when the sun was at its peak. Aaron, yours is greater. You will illuminate the darkness of night with the menorah. And if you read Aaron's story, this is his role. He is to be there for everyone even the sinners, in any situation, even the worst situation that a person may find themselves in. The Mishnah in the first chapter of Perkyavos tells us that we should strive to be students of Aaron. What does it mean to be a student of Aaron? hey Shalom, lover of peace, <speaking> Rodev <in> Shalom, pursuer of peace, Ohev Vesabrios, someone who loves humanity, who la Torah and draws them close to Torah. Who did Aaron love? Oh, He loved humanity. It doesn't say that he loved the righteous, the gifted, the talented, the scholarly, the wealthy, the sin-free. It doesn't even say that he loved Jews. He loved humanity, everyone. No matter what situation a person may be in, he loved you no matter what kind of background you may have, no matter what mistakes you may have made, no matter what difficulties you were going through, no matter what sins you may have committed, no matter how dark your world became, Aaron loved you. And Aaron kindled a menorah to brighten up your world. Aaron, yours is greater than theirs. The princes brought a tribute when everything was swell. Aaron is the one who brings our brethren back to Torah when they have gone astray, when their spiritual world is very dark. Aaron, your job is greater than theirs. And I have to mention an amazing Rebbein on that particular Mishnah in Pirkei And he actually shows us the Aaronic method of bringing Jews back to God and Torah. Again, we're told to be disciples, students of Aaron, people who love peace, people who pursue peace, people who love humanity, and bring them back to Torah. And this Rebani describes how Aaron would bring people back to Torah. And he says that whenever Aaron would sense in another person that maybe he needs some help, he needs a boost, he needs a pick-me-up, he would go and befriend him. And become close, beloved friends. And this person, this sinner, would say to himself, Oh no, if Aaron knew what I'm actually doing in secret, if he knew what's happening in my heart, he would never want to be my friend. But he's such good friends with me because he thinks I'm so righteous. And he thinks I only do mitzvot. But if he knew how bad I really was, he'd alienate me. Let me make sure that I mend my ways. And the person would do tshuva, the person would repent. And thus Aaron's friendship would actually help bring the person back to Torah, bring the person back to the good graces of God. And the Rebbeinah Yoder quotes a verse in Malachi, the very end of the Prophets. This is a favorite verse of mine. Of course, we're not allowed to say that one verse is better. We cannot assign grades to verses of scripture. But this is such a beautiful verse about Aaron. And incidentally, it comes from the Haftorah. Parsha told us, which is my Bar Mitzvah parasha, He quotes a verse that says as follows. Bishalom halachiti. Aaron went with me in peace and fairness. Meavon. And he brought the masses back from sin. Aaron had a unique way of dealing with people who were going through dark times. He loved them. He befriended them. And that brought them back to Torah. He was gentle. He was non-confrontational. It was his friendship that brought his brethren back home via love, not via judgment. And doing that, illuminating the menorah amid the darkness, is greater than any tribute when things are great. And once we're at it, how does that verse in Malachi continue? For the lips of the Kohen, Aaron, will guard knowledge and Torah they will seek from his mouth, for he is like an angel of God. That's Aaron. He is the one for people when they stray, when they're in a dark place, when they need some love. He is the one who can bring the masses back from sin. He is the one who's like an angel of God. He is the one that they request Torah from. He is the one who kindles the menorah in the night. The princes, they had a great tribute. Aaron, yours is greater than theirs because you light the menorah. There are two mitzvot that require a diagnosis that can only be done by Aaron and Aaron's descendants. The first is the Mitzorah, the person with Saras, that malady that inflicts someone that has done a sin. And the person has a skin malady, and it may be benign, but it may be an indicator of a grave sin. Who does that person go to for a diagnosis? Who is the only person that can diagnose the Mitzorah? That's the Kohen. And what, indeed, if it is Tzeras, and the person is proven to be a grave sinner, he must be quarantined outside of the camp for seven days. And hopefully he can be rehabilitated. And who is the one to sign off on his rehabilitation? Also the Kohen. When someone is in a very low place, a very dark place, Aaron, yours is greater than theirs. You help your brethren when things are dark. The sota the suspected adulteress we were about last week. Who diagnoses her? Again, the Cohen, Aaron and his children are the ones who are there for the sinners who are going through hard spiritual times. Aaron, yours is greater than theirs. When the bright lights are shining, when the tabernacle is being inaugurated, when everyone is so impressed with the tabernacle, when a fire descends down from heaven to consume the sacrifices from atop the altar and everyone cries out in delight and trepidation, of course, there's greatness in participating in that and bringing a tribute to Mark that. But Aaron, your greatness is even better because you're there for people who are in a rut, who are downtrodden, who need a boost, who need a helping hand. Maybe they've made some poor decisions that they regret and you are there to love them. You love humanity, no matter how far they may have strayed, and you bring them back to Torah, and that is even greater. I want to add one more idea, and then one more bit of speculation. So the menorah symbolizes Aaron illuminating the darkness, loving humanity, and bringing them back to Torah when they have gone astray. How must the menorah be lit? So again, the verses at the beginning of our parsha tells us speak to Aaron and say to him, When you kindle the lamps towards the face of the menorah, shall the seven lamps cast light. You have three in the right, three in the left, and they all have to be directed towards the center. Maybe this clues us in to how Aaron nudges the people back to Torah. We have seven lights. One of them is dead center, perfectly calibrated and oriented. And then we have the three on the right and the three on the left, and they're a bit uh, off center. What is Aaron's mandate? His mandate is to take everything, the good and what seems to be bad, the things that are perhaps distant, and make sure that all the lights are brought back to the center. All the lights are directed towards the middle, towards worship of the Almighty. Aaron is there to illuminate the darkness, to make sure that everything points to the center. In whatever situation, in whatever circumstances, with whatever abilities or lack thereof that a person may have, regardless of the situation they may be in, everything can be directed towards God. That work in the darkness, maneuvering things to be directed towards the center, that is greater than offering a lavish tribute when everything is a-okay. Aaron, there's no need to worry about your disinclusion from the prince's inauguration tributes. Yours is greater than theirs. And now for the circulation. You know, the skeptic can ask, hey, Wolby, this is a nice idea. Great. Lighting the menorah, illuminating the darkness is greater than the tribute. But why can't Aaron do both? Why can't you have your cake and eat it too? Let him offer the tribute and do the menorah. Why can't he have both? So here is my speculation. Perhaps we can say that had Aaron got a taste of the bright lights, perhaps he would have been incapacitated from doing the dirty work that was needed later. It's almost like a child actor. It creates a certain imbalance for the rest of their lives. Or someone whose first initiative succeeds wildly, that person unfortunately earns a skewed perspective of what things really are like that will hamper them in the future. So perhaps God is comforting Aaron. You have the menorah, that's what you do have, and by design you don't have the glamorous tribute, and that combination is greater than theirs. If we want to be like Aaron, if we want to have the ability to do the work of Aaron, to be the students of Aaron, to love peace, pursue peace, love humanity, and draw them close to Torah, we are going to have to forfeit a little bit of the glamour to be able to achieve that. And perhaps this is what Rashi is referring to. And this is why specifically the menorah is the comfort, because specifically the menorah highlights what Aaron's role is on a big picture and why what he does is greater than what the princes brought on the inauguration ceremony. I feel like this idea has a lot of lessons. When things are going well, it's kind of easy to want to help, to bring the tribute. But it's even greater to become a beacon, a menorah, in the darkness. Helping others, no matter who. Wherever they may be, however far they may have strayed, when they're down, no matter how far, that is the admirable quality of Aaron. He lit the menorah in the darkness. Doesn't get the same publicity or recognition of other pursuits. And indeed, we could speculate that reveling in the limelight makes you less capable of doing that. But this is why Aaron is so great. He loves humanity. He loves them and doesn't judge them. And the changes that they make it happens on their own. It's not compelled from outside. You think about them in a very positive light. How to take even the things that appear to be bad or distant, like the peripheral candles of the menorah, and try to direct them back to the center. And that, indeed, is the best way to to bring Jews back to the Almighty and back to Torah. Okay, let's get to this week's A&Q answers and questions. Well, if this is the first time you're listening to the Parsha Podcast, first of all, welcome. It's great to have you. We hope you enjoy. My email address is rabbiwalbejmail.com for any questions, comments, or feedback. We have a section of the Parsha Podcast each week called A and Q, answers and questions, which is the exact opposite of questions and answers. Questions and answers, the audience peppers the presenter with questions and the presenter can maybe answer them or maybe not answer them, but that is the way the flow happens. In answers and questions is the opposite. It's the presenter that presents the questions to the audience and the audience has to think about it and hopefully Come up with an answer, or two, or ten, and share them with the presenter. So that's what we do on the Parsha Podcast. And this week's question comes from a later section of our Parsha that talks about the silver trumpets. This is chapter 10 of our Parsha of the Book of Numbers. God tells Moshe, make for yourself silver trumpets. And that's going to be used to beckon the people, to beckon the leaders, to indicate decampment. This is the way you communicate with a very large camp. Now, interestingly, it is one of the three things that are hewn from a single block. You start off with a big hunk of silver and you hammer and carve out the trumpet. You cannot create the parts separately and weld them together. And I said there are three themes, to my knowledge, that are made, hewn out of, hammered out of a single block. You have the menorah, the beginning of our parasha. You must start off with a big block of gold and then chip away. And what's left is the menorah. And we have the Kaporis, the cover of the ark, upon which we have the two cherubs. And that too cannot be welded together. It has to be hewn from a single piece. And we have the silver trumpets that Moshe makes in our parsha. Isn't that interesting? We have these three vessels or three or two parts of the tabernacle and one, the paraphernalia, the, the trumpets of Moshe, that must be hewn from a single piece. Other vessels, other things that are made, can be perhaps welded together, but these three must be hewn from a single block of gold or silver. And the question is why? Why specifically these three themes, the menorah, the kaporus, the cover of the altar that has the cherubs and the silver trumpets, why these three themes must be hammered out of a single piece of metal? If you have an answer, you can send me an email, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Okay, last week we asked a question about the blessings of the Kohanim. It's the one blessing that we mentioned that the actual text of the blessing is in the Torah. And you cannot tamper with it. You cannot improvise. You cannot ad lib. It's rigid. You gotta say these words and no others. If you go to Shul in Israel, they do this every day. In the diaspora, most places do it only in the festivals. And the Kohanim go up and they make this blessing. They say the identical words that are featured in the book of Numbers. And there's no room to ad-lib. And the question is, why not? Why don't we let them improvise a little bit? Wouldn't that be a little bit more personal? A little bit more meaningful? Why are they like reading a script that seems very stilted? So, of course, the incomparable Parsha Podcast family sent in a bevy of wonderful responses. I want to share one idea. These tohanim are not giving their own blessing. In fact, the verse actually says clearly that they are just being the funnel, the conduit to place the name of God in the people. So we could say perhaps that this is a blessing that comes down from above. You know, one of the motifs that we've talked about in the past is the idea of the two spiritual directions. We have the angels going up the ladder in Jacob's dream and the angels going down the ladder in Jacob's dream. We talked about the difference between Moshe and Aaron or the difference of prayer. Prayer is taking our hopes and our yearnings and our aspirations and elevating that like a sacrifice. Torah is the opposite. It's taking the heavenly Torah and bringing it down. Perhaps we can say, that when someone takes something down from heaven on high, we must not add any of our own embellishments. That is anathema because we are tampering with the gift of God. Similar to Torah. We must take every care to not corrupt what God gave us. That's almost like the National Mission of the Jewish People to preserve, protect, and defend, and perpetuate the Torah from Sinai to present day. That's when things come down from heaven on high. When we pray, we're petitioning God, we're sending up our sentiments and hopes and desires, then it's okay, and maybe even desirable, to go off script and to ad-lib, and to be as raw and as real and as personal as possible. But we are in big trouble, if we play around with what comes down from above. That's the perspective. Hope you enjoy it. I thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your day. A fabulous rest of your week. A wonderful and fantastic and peaceful and serene and tranquil Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will speak again next week.